Cheers. It's what hopefully will be a monumental week. We've got I know. two important judgments, but one of them that could be groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. We won't say more later for another podcast. I know. But um, we've been looking at a number of cases this week. That oh, and before we get going, can I just showcase? We have I noticed. One of our very loyal viewers uh, messaged me saying, dude, you got to get coasters. Look what you're going to do to the table. And he said, it's like my grandmother talking in my ear about, and it was, it was very funny. So we got, thank you. We got, uh, we got coasters. Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> All right. But, um, so we've been looking at, for a variety of reasons, looking at uh, some cases. We've kind of, you know, it was not new case law, but it's a really interesting topic, I think, because... It keeps coming up and up and yeah, up. And, and the basic gist of what we want to talk about is um, putting your character on trial and um, the limitations on both the defense in terms of character evidence and on the prosecutors who quite often get a, well, used to get away with it a lot more using bad character evidence as part of narrative and the interesting you know there's an interesting decision that uh, MRS case which we'll we'll talk about a bit more where where Justice Pachoco (laughs) (laughs) I know he said uh, you can't use narrative as a portal like Crown can't use narrative as a portal to bring in bad character evidence so explain what what this is prior discreditable conduct well it can take the form of a number of things but uh, primarily it's uncharged allegations of prior acts of um, criminal conduct that could include in a, for example, a sexual assault case, other unwanted sexual touching in a domestic assault case could be acts of abuse, coercion, or domination within a relationship that have not resulted in charges and uh, is being used by the Crown to establish certain relevant facts uh, but typically you find in, in cases of sexual assault, there could be uncharged allegations or even other charged allegations uh, which resulted in maybe not going ahead for whatever reason. They can try and, and garner this evidence for the purposes of establishing a pattern of behavior uh, where it's strikingly similar um, to prove a certain issue, which could be identity. But most typically what we deal with is within the context of domestic allegations where there could be sexual assault allegations coupled in with domestic assault allegations and threatening and other conduct there's this wide range of alleged abusive conduct that's gone over the course of a number of years which the crown seeks to tender to establish a number of factors and it used to come in um, as you said as a part of a narrative to explain why a person didn't report or why why they didn't leave why the complainant didn't leave and all sorts of things that we know are not relevant grounds of admissibility and not a a relevant way of assessing credibility of a complainant but it used to be really just like sort of the wild west of getting this evidence in and then it was reeled in very well now through a number of decisions but it's still there and it comes in quite often um and uh, in, in a certain case that we're looking at now, we can't talk much about it, but the Crown, in a case, uh, had garnered similar act evidence about how an allegation was disclosed, and in the course of that evidence, that other person had said that they were sexually assaulted as well. Not charged, 
Right. So um, it's not a it's complainant. It's it's just another person saying, and, and essentially it's being used to bootstrap the other, the complainant's evidence saying, oh, well, it's not just them. There's other people who are saying the same thing happened to them. And, and that's that's improper as far as I'm concerned. It, it definitely, improper it's, it's definitely used in cases to bootstrap. Most commonly we, we have it in cases that are domestic related and where there's historical allegations. So, so explain like, what are the rules around if you have a, a number of allegations, let's say there's like one charge that goes from a time period to a time period, then you've got tons of evidence, some of it within that time period, some of it out of it. Uh, if you if you decide that one thing is true, can you cross reason for to to say if that if I believe that one's true, then the other ones are, are true? So are you talking about a multi-count indictment or a multi-count information? So if you have a number of charges, both, or you have one charge, but then there's a number of allegations within that time frame because sometimes it's like a global charge. You have to deal with it in two ways. So if you have a, a number of charges, let's say eight charges of assault, sexual assault, and other things you cannot simply use the evidence on one to support the evidence on the other. The judge or the jury has to be instructed or the judge instructs themselves that that evidence can't be used for an impermissible purpose to establish that the person is more likely to have committed that other act. Mm -hmm. On a, a global charge, which is a little bit more problematic, so it's one count of assault with like eight facets of it. If you believe any single one of them, then it's gonna the be The person can be guilt. convicted because it's just one count. But what can easily happen <laughs> is a judge has to be very mindful and be instructed or a jury that they cannot use the evidence on any one of the elements. I don't even know how to describe it because they really should be individually. Global charges should not occur anymore yeah. um, simply because of the complexity of this type of evidence and how it's to be used. But in those instances, you have to be extremely careful to articulate what cannot be used and why um, because it can easily overflow and then support um, the allegations in general. And one of, one of the things I've seen on appeals is that there's an argument saying, well, the the judge uh, or the jury didn't believe um, usually the, the appeal on, on the reasons of a judge because you get reasons. But if they didn't believe a number of allegations, doesn't that disbelief in those allegations affect their finding of credibility on another one? So that's a big point of confusion. If a judge doesn't, if, if they find that the complainant wasn't believable on certain things, how can they believe them on anything else? Yeah, well, you know, so we're, we're talking about two different things. And, and, and one is about the liberty of somebody who's charged with offenses for which the Crown has to establish proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And you have the presumption of innocence and you have the assessment of credibility. So you're looking at credibility and reliability. And so where you may have evidence which is sorely lacking on a number of counts where there are significant reliability and credibility issues, it's very hard not to argue and not to accept as, as a court that that will factor in on the believability or the acceptability of the other evidence. So for example, where we had in a recent case where there was clear tainting of evidence and somebody and one of the complainants had specifically said something which was a lie. How does that not impact their reliability and credibility on all the other counts? So what's good for the defense is not always good for the prosecution for very good reasons. But sometimes, uh, you know, acquitting on a number of charges and then convicting on certain other ones will show that they're not using cross-count reasoning. So the acquittal isn't necessarily finding the person lied. It's just saying that the burden of proof wasn't necessarily met. So, um, but it's, uh, it can get quite confusing for people, especially you know, when, they're, when they're looking at appeals and, and how to articulate their concerns. Let's keep in mind that 
you know, there's two different analysis when, and I, and I think we should probably break this down. When you're looking at, you know, prior discreditable conduct, essentially that's just bad character evidence mm -hmm. across the board. And many of these trials were essentially one big giant bad character evidence, you know, portrayal. It's very important to make sure that evidence is properly admitted because bad character evidence is presumptively inadmissible, period. Whether it's in the form of prior discreditable conduct combined with a similar act application or not. And, and there has to be for admissibility very clear, um, a, a very clear foundational basis to have it admitted. Then there has to be a very clear basis in which the, how it can be used right. and how it can be um, probative of, of the allegations itself. It should be called like limiting instructions. That's really important because we're dealing with somebody's lib lib uh, liberty and we're looking at issues with respect to you know, adhering to these very strict principles that we have of presumption of innocence, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, etc. It's a whole different analysis when you're dealing with the evidence of the prosecution and you have a complainant come forward on several allegations, which are several counts within a charge, charging document, the court information, and how that person then responds to evidence, it really all goes into the mix. You know, I have this horrible expression, you know, once you make the pea soup, it's very hard to take the pea out of the pea soup. Mm -hmm. um, it's an overall analysis of reliability and credibility, which is very different than how we assess the evidence of the prosecution. And that's for very good reasons that we don't want to arrive at wrongful convictions. And that expression too is like sometimes like there's stuff known in advance of what they intend on lead, but uh, on leading. But quite often when a complainant takes the stand, they end up just throwing a bunch of other stuff out there. Uh, when asked a simple question, all of a sudden, you know, all this new stuff might come out that nobody's even the prosecutor hasn't heard before, which yes, can right. amount to bad character evidence. And then it's like, whoa, 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 what are we gonna do? Yeah, so that, look, that happens very commonly. You ask a question to say, you know, what color shirt were you wearing that day? Well, your client, you know, told me I'm, I'm an asshole and he choked me um, seven weeks before because I was wearing a purple shirt. Right. Right, so it just comes out. <laughs> yes. And, you know, everybody has to remember that, you know, bad character evidence is not admissible, but then, you know, when you have that happen in cross-examination or even in the evidence of, of the Crown, that diminishes the reliability of a witness because of their willingness to create evidence as you go along. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. You got to be careful about it, but also it shows you the willingness of somebody to create evidence to try and get a court to convict. Mm -hmm. Now, in uh, one of the cases that I mentioned earlier, MRS, um, it's outlined as uh, RVMRS 2020 ONCA, which is Ontario Court of Appeals 667. And uh, so one of the dangers that is outlined in there of this type of evidence is that it, it risks propensity reasoning, which is to say that somebody is more likely to have committed an offense because of other alleged prior act, uh, bad acts. But again, they're just alleged bad acts and they're not necessarily proven. But you, you raised a good point. So again, the Court of Appeal was very clear about saying that, again, use for narrative can't be a portal for gratuitous propensity evidence mm -hmm. about uncharged similar acts. Mm -hmm. And so that's why this has to be grounded in real admissibility, um, not just for the point of narrative because of just how insidious and dangerous this is because it leads to propensity. If they 
slapped somebody on one occasion, allegedly, then they are more than likely to have done it on another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's like moral prejudice and reasoning prejudice that are the two main risks. Uh, morality being if you believe things to be true, then you could just be like, oh, he probably did it because I think he's a bad person overall. Um, usually a he. But uh, so, yeah, there's a couple of good cases on that. But another thing that struck me, you know, in thinking about this is how often it is we have clients come in and say, I have 10 witnesses who'll say that I'm a great person and I would never do these kind of things. And uh, so they think that there's going to be a, a slam dunk because they've got uh, a certain number of high profile character witnesses. But what's the problem with that? So let's let's take that in the context of a non-sexual assault case because anything involving sexual assault, you know, there happens it, in privacy. Yeah, yeah it's normally. yeah, it's in private and character good character evidence is not admissible at all in a sexual assault case so it's just not allowed it's not going to help it doesn't factor into permissible reasoning but and also you end up putting your character on trial well that's the big point so in domestic cases as well people say well you know my neighbors my friends they all know i'm a great guy i'm you know wonderful with my kids i was wonderful with my wife um I, you know, I would have never done this. Here's like X, Y, Z, you know, just interview them and, and they'll they'll show that I'm innocent. That is not helpful at all. And it opens the door. One, it puts your character in issue. So if you seek to put in that evidence, it's open for the Crown then to call bad character evidence. And that's perfectly admissible. And in cross-examination... And it wouldn't be otherwise until you put that's your character in right. and, and, and what's even more dangerous is sometimes when cross-examining a witness for the prosecution you can inadvertently put your own clients evidence their own character in issue by eliciting certain evidence and then open the door to bad character evidence and the questioning itself can elicit bad character evidence you have to be very careful about that so when a client comes forward and says this to us we go thank you that's very nice but typically um, in 30 years I have never called good character evidence and it will never carry the day Normally, would the good character evidence or references would become relevant in sentencing? <laughs> yeah, God for yeah. I mean, if you get to that point, we that's got right. There. <laughs> yeah, thank God. But but, I know. but that's right. I mean, you know, there may be the odd case where, you know, on a on a a certain type of offense, you want to call some character evidence, um, but character on its face usually is there, and we've evolved in our system to know that, you know, people who may be outwardly, you know, very great people do certain bad things behind closed doors, which is what, you know, typically we deal with. Um, but it's just not, it's not helpful. And it's very hard to sometimes explain to clients why it's not helpful. I know. Cause that's, uh, they're just like, they come in so confident thinking, oh yes, I've got like, you know, one of my, one of my character witnesses is a police officer even. And I was like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, no. And that happens to us quite often. You know, it's like, I'm sorry, it's not admissible. You know, there's another thing that came up as I was looking through a case that I thought was kind of interesting in terms of similar fact evidence uh, for bad character that um, a lot of people would be like, I don't know how this is going to trial because they have no corroboration for the complainant's uh, story. And, and of course, there's no corroboration required. But when the Crown is attempting to use similar fact evidence, that similar fact evidence is essentially being used as corroboration. And that's improper, right? Right. So similar act evidence cannot be used as corroboration because that would be essentially propensity reasoning, right? right? 
So it can be used for very defined reasons. Most typically it's because of identification, but similar act evidence can be at a certain level used essentially for propensity, mm -hmm. right? Where you have, you may have a number of witnesses about a modus operandi, which is so strikingly similar that it overcomes the prejudice of what could be essentially, let's just call it what it is, propensity reasoning. Mm -hmm. And then it's circumstantial evidence supportive of the complainant's testimony. Mm -hmm. So, you know, well, th there are instances like that. I mean, we haven't, we haven't really had them, um, but they happen, but I'd suggest that they're more rare and you have to have really, really compelling evidence on behalf of the prosecution for that to work. And in terms of corroboration, um, things that may corroborate an allegation or a defense um, you know, narrative are usually circumstantial evidence. Explain that a little bit more so everybody understands. So there's direct evidence in terms of, I have a video um, or an audio recording or something uh, you know, that's directly related to the specific charge. But then there's, uh, there's circumstantial evidence in terms of uh, where a person might have been earlier in the evening versus where they're alleged to have been. And the, those things aren't necessarily, um, they don't necessarily prove or disprove an allegation, but there's, it's circumstantial and that tends to accumulate and it'll make something more or less likely to be true. Right, it's a good point. And so those things, I find those things form a large portion of the evidence given at trial, things that ultimately are circumstantial evidence. And we have to be really careful about how we present, you know, the, um, the, the defense narrative and, and, and the summary of what we think should be taken away from the evidence at trial to make it clear that, you know, we're not claiming this thing proves something or, you know, but it makes it more likely to be true. That's, um, Part of the skill, I think, of, of becoming a, a really good lawyer is to, uh, I, I don't think I have the book with me, but The Law of Evidence. Yeah. <laughs> a massively thick book, which is one of the most complicated areas. And, and that's, Well, there's a lot of books written on evidence by a number of very accomplished lawyers and yeah. judges and such, so. Yeah. But it's really difficult to understand, and I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges we face when we first meet with clients, is trying to explain why certain evidence is admissible or not admissible. Yeah, because it's foreign to them. It's, you know, they don't understand it. They've never been in trouble before. They're not a lawyer. And and this area of law is complex and you have to keep reviewing it when you're in when you're defending domestic and sexual assault cases. The, the, the law evolves a lot and it has over the last several years. So it's very difficult explaining it. I think the other thing is, which which is very important is, you know, sometimes in cases where you have historical allegations and current allegations, sometimes within the domestic context, you have to have sort of like a, a Jedi sense of what is going to work and not work, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm not giving away too much that I just love Star Wars. I like Star Trek too, but love Star Wars. But you got to get a feel for it, even though... Do or not do, there is yeah, no Yeah, you know... You know a recent case we had where, you know, we were bringing an application to have admitted an allegation that the complainant made um, that was uncharged because it happened in another jurisdiction, you know, on the honeymoon, you know, he kept touching my thigh. Um, we were on our honeymoon and he kept touching my thigh and he kept telling him to stop touching me. 
and that that was a sexual assault in her mind and and in it you know an unwanted touching in that area what did they call that sexual assault? the honeymoon from hell the honeymoon from hell <laughs> and um we were actually seeking to have that admitted mm-hmm. the crown didn't want to because it's in another jurisdiction and the judge was you know arguing uh with me <laughs> with us on why would you on earth ever want you know, some evidence that he was committing a sexual assault while on the honeymoon. And, you know, the argument was, you may think it's a sex assault, Your Honor, but, you know, 12 people sitting in that jury box are going to go, you're on your honeymoon. Seriously? What a horrible person this is. Seriously, <laughs> yeah, uh, in comparison to this, because we were also dealing with another ridiculous... It's, yeah, to, to characterize, to have a honeymoon like that and characterize that as a sexual assault is just outrageous. In the context of a honeymoon and in the context of another allegation where they were cuddling and we're going to get it. We, we were in this on previous In the podcasts. end, we just had so much evidence, we didn't really need it. So. No, but we were successful on it because the judge recognized at the end of the day that, it, you know, to use his words, I'm not in the driver's seat on this. And it may very well, I see that it could could be relevant. So what I'm trying to drive at is, you know, although we can try and explain to the clients what is relevant, what isn't, and we have to be very careful about, you know, prior discreditable conduct leaking in without it being checked or stopping it. You've got to be very careful about this. There are a lot of times when sometimes this bad character evidence is very important for cross-examination because it shows an unreasonable position. It shows you know, a, a, a complainant who's willing to exaggerate or, or create something that is not a crime, that's not criminal in nature. So you gotta, you gotta have flexibility with that. And, it, and it's, it's really an issue of where it comes down to. And sometimes it's, you know, court of appeal will deal with this, the court in the sense well, that- Well, it was a question in that case of who was in control in the relationship and who was the abusive person, so. It was, but, but you know, lawyers have to make judgment calls. And sometimes you may get it right, sometimes you may get it wrong. But, you know, you're in that case, you've got a feel for the evidence and you understand how the flow is going and what you're trying to establish and why. And sometimes there's that evidence that you're just going to want, regardless of what the admissibility rules are. It can't always be, you know. Well, and we, you know, as we've explained in other podcasts, uh, in advance of trial, you need to have permission in case you decide you want to use it. You may not necessarily use that evidence once you get there and that's part of you know the brilliance of what you do when you're on your feet in the courtroom um, reacting and and making decisions on, you know, as we go as to which stuff is required and which stuff is working and yeah and, and it's, when you're cross it's quite fascinating to watch how you how you shift things around based on how evidence is coming out and when you cross-examine it's a dynamic process you're watching and it's listening an to it is you're watching and listening to the complainant and and or the witness and you have to react and there's ways do you react which furthers your case. But I think it's important to note that in general, what creeps into these types of cases, and it, and this is why I guess we're talking about it again in this episode, is because it keeps coming up in cases we're reading, including court of appeal decisions, that you know, particularly in the domestic context and, and what we deal with a lot that comes out of high conflict divorces and others, where the, the seepage of this bad character evidence is so easy to come in and you have to be so careful and if you if it's not necessary for the purposes of your own defense you know proof of it as the court of appeal has said proof of general disposition is prohibited bad character is not an offense 
Right. Right. And it doesn't always have to be a criminal offense. It's not offense. a crime to, to be a bad person. <laughs> right. So, it, it, you know, how, how insidious it gets and how you have to be careful is it's not always evidence of a particular offense, like somebody slapped me. But what we have now, and I think we have to be careful as we move forward, is what will be used as coercive control mm. and how that is bad character evidence. And women watch out because when coercive control, if it becomes a crime, you're going to be guilty of a lot more than you expected. Well, there was a study. <laughs> there was a study you were relying upon when it came to uh, of coercive control. People expressed control. concern with coercive control that women would find themselves being uh, you know, charged with things that uh, they wanted to avoid women being charged but coercive control is not yet a crime in and of itself, but it but there is a strong push for its recognition and its consideration in the course of domestic uh, abuse. And we've just had an amendment now to the bail provisions in Canada where um, there's going to be man more mandatory uh, training for judges and, and justice of the peace um, about uh, abuse within a domestic context. And um, and consideration on a domestic bail, um, if it's necessary to have ankle monitoring, believe it or not. But the idea is that there has to be a more in-depth, nuanced understanding of what is coercive control. So the only reason I'm saying that, for good or for bad, is that it's elements of that which can seep very easily into a trial, which can be domestic but it can involve assaults, threats, criminal harassment, sexual assault, everything, where somebody can be facing multiple years in jail, that as a defense lawyer, you have to be very careful about understanding that, you know, when somebody says, well, he was the one who always controlled the finances. Mm -hmm. Well, that's bad character evidence. Right. Uh, you know, and... Um, I, you know, I can't think of other examples, but that's 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 one that's came up. Or, you know, he. I had to get permission to go out. I couldn't see know, my family. Even, yeah, I couldn't see my family. That I couldn't see my family. Or, or you know, he was always asking who I'm going out with. We have to be careful as to how far we go down that road, as to really what is bad character evidence, and what form it takes then, and how it becomes admissible, especially with this, this push, for coercive control to be a very live element of these cases. Well, and I guess I, just to close it off too, one of the things that really strikes me is the double standard where, you know, Crown will always try to prevent defense from bringing in narrative evidence, saying, oh, narrative's dead since a case called Goldfinch or whatever. Like, <laughs> context is not permissible unless it's the Crown wanting to lead the same, you know, the exact same type of evidence, in which case it's like, oh, it's essential part of the narrative. Explain that for one second, because we've said this before. And it's really worth saying. So, Crown for the people in the States. Crown is the prosecutor. <laughs> but in sexual assault cases here, um, we're not allowed to call context evidence or narrative evidence about the relationship in which these people got together on a particular night where there's this allegation because that's just simply narrative and context. That's not relevant anymore when, frankly, it is. It is. And, and they always argue that it's relevant when it's the complainant who wants to bring that type of evidence in. And and sometimes it just gets in, even when they're not asking for the evidence to come out. In the same way, a complainant can go to the police and give text messages over, but if there's missing text messages, oh, the defense, we have to bring a whole application to get permission to use the exact same messages that the complainant can just hand over with no questions asked. Yeah, so we just, we gotta, you know, always be mindful of 
you know, the fairness instrument here. And, and I think we'd said on uh, a previous podcast, I think it hasn't dropped yet, but, you know, we're starting to see, I think, an equilibrium now with how we deal with this. We'll, yeah. we'll see if that continues. But this can be dangerous evidence, and it's worth this refresher to make sure you got to be very careful about what is prior discreditable conduct, what's bad character evidence, and really it has to be grounded. Uh, in and order keep to be that admissible. in mind for people who think that they can just bring in good character evidence in their defense because it opens up a whole wormhole. I agree. Until next time. Yeah. Like, subscribe, hit notifications, share, uh, share, and Go leave, to our TikTok and leave comments. Yeah. Thank TikTok. you for viewing, everybody. <laughs> Have a good night. <laughs>